so thankful that you're here this morning. And uh, Hannah and Emma just sang about what we're studying today in a message entitled The Three Trees of Christmas. We're going to be looking at the beginning of the Bible and the end of the Bible. Uh, perhaps you're here today and you've never really looked in, in depth into the Bible. Uh, today my goal is to give you really the message of the entire Bible in less than... What did Jessica say on the video? We're going to be here less than an hour? I'm not sure... I'm going to get you out of here as soon as we can. Hey, good news is we don't have small groups after the service today, and we start early at 9.30, so I'm going to do my best to have you out of here by 11 o'clock, about 45 minutes from now. But listen, today I want to give to you the message of the entire Bible in 45 minutes, and it really does have to do with this message titled, The Three Trees of Christmas. We're going to start out in Genesis 2, so you can go ahead and get your place there in Genesis chapter number 2. Good to see you this morning. And... Um, how many of you live with a Scrooge? Don't point to anyone, anyway. Got any Scrooges? Anybody who needs a little Christmas cheer? Maybe need to see an elf or something. Maybe he can cheer you up. But anyway, uh, oh Christmas tree, oh Christmas tree, thy leaves are so unchanging, not only green when summer's here, but also when tis cold and drear. Oh Christmas tree, oh Christmas tree, Thy leaves are so unchanging. At this time of year, there's many Christmas songs that we like to sing. And this song's always caught me a little bit funny because it's not a song sung about Jesus or the angels or the shepherds. It's not even a song sung about the tree. This is a song sung to the tree. Isn't that interesting that there's a song that's really being sung to a tree? What is the big deal with Christmas trees? I mean, Christmas trees are a big deal, aren't they? Um, our country has over, catch this, over 12,000 cut-your-own-tree farms. How many of you got a real Christmas tree this Christmas? Raise your hand. And how many of you are not, not that inclined and you do the plastic approach? Raise your hand. All right, the plastic, the fake ones win out the day, uh, probably because you don't want to vacuum up Christmas needles for the next 20 months. But anyway, Christmas trees are a big deal. Live ones are. Um, there's 12,000 cut-your-own-tree farms in America. Each acre of a Christmas tree farm holds about 2,000 trees. There's approximately 100,000 people employed in the Christmas tree farm industry. That's incredible to think about. Over 100,000 people, 30 to 40 million Christmas trees will be sold annually. So I guess there's some money to be made in this Christmas tree business. How did Christmas trees get started? Where did that tradition originate from? Um, evergreen trees have been used in winter celebrations even before the birth of Christ. People would decorate their homes using evergreen branches during the winter solstice, the first day of, of, of winter. Um, and it reminded them that in the dead of winter, they put these evergreens in their home to remind themselves that spring was indeed coming. Now, for us, we don't get that. But if you're up north, like in Connecticut or another place, uh, Iowa, even the Midwest, you're going to get the idea that you probably need a reminder that spring is around the corner. And so they put evergreen trees in their home right there in the middle of winter to remind them that spring was coming. The first documented use of a Christmas tree in the worship and celebration of Christmas, Christ's birth, was in Latvia, Europe in 1510. And the first person to most likely bring a tree inside their home for the Christmas celebration was Martin Luther, uh, one of those early church fathers there in the 1500s. And so they have been a part of our culture, cultural traditions for the last several hundred years. Um, but the Bible, I want us to see this morning, has a lot to say about trees as well. 
In fact, the story of the true story of the Bible can be summarized with the events surrounding three trees. And so today, maybe you um, weren't raised in church, or maybe you were, but you got away from church, and, and maybe this big book has always seemed confusing. I hope that one of the goals of today's message will be that this will become very simple and, and, and able to understand, because really, you can summarize the entire story of the Bible with three trees. And so with that, we're going to look at Genesis 2, but for about five minutes, I want to talk to you about this. What is a worldview? Because really, this study today in the three trees of Christmas has to do not only with getting an overview of the entire story of the Bible, but it also has to do with understanding what a worldview is. What is a worldview? Well, you can see some ideas there. It's how you and I view the world. It's how we make sense of or interpret the world in which we live. Every one of us in this room this morning has a worldview. You have a certain way that you see the world. In fact, you and I could not function in life without a worldview. Every politician, every philosopher, every lecturer, every teacher you hear has a worldview. Um, Every book you read, every movie you watch, every song you listen to has a worldview that's underpinning their assumptions about life, their deductions about life, and their conclusions about life. All of us have a worldview. Now, we might not give much thought to the worldview that we have, and our worldview might not be all that accurate, but the reality is we usually have a worldview that we stick with until we're adequately challenged or in that worldview, or we are given evidence and arguments to change our mind about our worldview. And so a worldview is how we interpret everything. It's the grid in which we pour every life experience and circumstance. I think that this is an area that we as parents can probably do a better job, all of us, in helping our kids to identify the worldviews that they are presented with. Um, My boys, and in fact all of my kids, love Star Wars. But do you realize Star Wars has a worldview? They have a certain worldview that they're presenting. Uh, 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 Santa Claus, he has a worldview, right? The naughty and the nice get the toys and the presents, or the uh, nice get the toys and the presents, and the naughty get the cold. And so everyone has a worldview. And what I'm saying this morning is, is it's, it's not that you can't ever watch a movie or read a book that doesn't have the correct worldview. I'm just saying that we don't need to turn off our worldview filter in the process. And so we need to always be asking ourselves the question of, where is this story, where is this book, where is this movie, where is it coming from? What is their worldview? And so I want to give to you just quickly, and this is there in your notes, so you can write these down. I want to give to you the four basic questions that a worldview seeks to answer. Four basic questions. Number one, the beginning. How did all this get here? How did all this get here? Number two, what went wrong? Because no matter who you talk to, whether they are secular or Christian in their upbringing, everyone you talk to admits something's broken about this world. Something's not right. So what went wrong? What's the solution? And where is all of this going? And when you really boil down a worldview and, 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 and talk to people about how they view the world, they have answers or what they believe to be answers on these four, four questions. And so I start off with this small introduction just to help us as we want to keep the worldview in focus throughout our entire life. And what I want to do through these three trees of Christmas, through these three trees that really point us to the whole purpose for why Christ came, 
I want us to see that these three trees also help to answer these four questions and helps to develop a biblical worldview. Now, if you know Christ in here, you're going to encounter most likely during these Christmas parties, these get-togethers, people, whether it's in your family or neighbors or coworkers, you're going to confront people who don't have a biblical worldview. And, and so how do we present that in a way that helps to answer these questions and helps to share the gospel through this context? And so the first tree we want to look at is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Let's read in Genesis 2, verses 15 through 17. The Bible says in Genesis 2, verses 15 through 17, And the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden to dress it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. Thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. And I just read the wrong verses. (laughs) There you go. That's actually verses 8 through 10. And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden. And there he put the man whom he had formed, and out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is planted, pleasant to the sight and good for food. And so you have two trees mentioned here. We're going to start with the last one first and go back to the tree of life. So number one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I want you to notice that these two trees, and we'll start with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, this tree was in what we would call paradise, the Garden of Eden. Has there ever been a time in your life that you would describe as paradise, as perfect. Where's our newlyweds? Anybody, any newlyweds would would, uh, describe your... Josh, he's been married for 10, 15, 20 years. Uh, It's still paradise, right, Josh? You're going to get extra cookies, I'm I'm guessing. Uh, No, I mean, on our honeymoon, right? You're in paradise. Everything was perfect. Your, Your spouse was the answer. And then you got home from your honeymoon, and you found out it probably wasn't exactly paradise. What about that first baby that you held in your arms when that little child was born, and you're like, this child is going to always and ever and only make me happy, joy, peace, contentment. How many of you know that that paradise moment only lasted a short time? Yeah, we would all, we would all agree that uh, paradise was lost rather quickly. Isn't it funny that we're always in in search of paradise, and yet paradise so quickly slips through our fingers? What if I told you that there was a time in human history where it was paradise, right here in the Garden of Eden? It was what we call man's paradise. God had created this paradise for man to live in and enjoy and to experience relationship with him. And as we know the story, if you've grown up in church, you know the story quickly goes downhill because of this tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, what the tree of the knowledge of good and evil does is it helps us to answer the first two questions. It helps us to answer in a biblical worldview how we got here. God created all this. He placed two people, man and woman, in this garden. They could enjoy everything in the garden, but God did give to them a command. We're going to talk about that here in just a moment, about why he gave them that. But these two questions this first tree addresses. How did we get here and what went wrong? And so everything that's wrong in our life stems from this tree. Broken marriages originate from this tree. Every distant and broken relationship with with family extends from this tree. Disease, pain, and suffering extend from this tree. Miserable Mondays extend from this tree. 
This is why this tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, is why we live with regrets. Regrets that we wish that we could take away. This is why we suffer with shame and sorrow. And many times, shame and sorrow that never seems to subside. It's because of this And so God said to Adam and Eve in Genesis 2, 15 through 17, the Lord God took man and put him in the garden to dress it and to keep it. And the Lord God gave to man one command, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. From the day that thou eatest, thou shalt surely die. Why did God do this? Why did God give to man this command? This is a question that... that is continuing to be discussed by scholars and philosophers, but what is the essence of true human existence? Is it not the fact that we have individual soul liberty that each one of us possesses? All of us chose to be here this morning. We know this intuitively. And what God wanted when he placed man and, man and woman in the garden was he wanted a genuine relationship based off genuine love. And so love includes and inherit in love is the reality that there is a choice. And so God gave to man a choice to either live with him forever in this paradise or to become their own God, to turn their back, to doubt the goodness of God, to turn their back on God and to try to become their own God. And so the story continues. If you look over in Genesis chapter number 3, the story continues in verses 1 through 5 that the serpent, the subtle serpent, came to Adam and Eve. And, and the story goes that he deceived Eve into taking of this fruit and eating and giving to her, her husband. And in fact, Adam and Eve didn't need to eat of this fruit of this tree. They didn't need what was on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They could be satisfied with just the beauty of the tree. In fact, God had put those, all the trees in the garden because they were beautiful. They could have just been satisfied that God knew best. They could have been satisfied that God had a good reason for this command. And they could have just rested in the truth that God had provided for them all they needed and more. They didn't need to go outside of God trying to find more for their life. Isn't that the essence of all sin? Regardless of how big or how small we might think it is. That sin is us looking at God and saying, God, you're not enough. I need more. But every person who's ever been addicted to any sin will tell you it's never enough. There's always a need for more. And so the story goes... um, Eve took of that fruit. The woman saw that the tree was good for food that was pleasant to the eyes. And a tree to be desired to make one wise. And she took of the fruit thereof and did eat. And gave also unto her husband with her. And he did eat. So what went wrong in this world? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Mankind stopped trusting God and decided to lean into their own understanding. Everything changed in that moment. If you read the rest of Genesis 3, you'll find out that that because they took of the fruit of this tree, this is why there's pain in childbirth. (laughs) Yes. This is why, even though you might like your job at times, this is why jobs are miserable because of the sweat of man's brow. Now he has to work. This is why there's pain and suffering. This is why there's guilt, fear, shame, broken relationships. And this is why ultimately there is death. Genesis 6 changed everything. 
And ultimately, it changed our relationship with God and with others. Left in the wake of the choice of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil with Adam and Eve was just brokenness, emptiness, shame, and fear. We now have, everyone who's ever been born now had a sin nature. And so this is where Genesis answers and gives to us the information about how we got here, but then what happened? Because if God created the universe, you would think that it would be a lot better than it is. And oh, it was, but something went terribly wrong, and it was in the choice that mankind made. And some of us might say, well, if I had been Adam and Eve, I would have made the right choice. Uh, You've already proven that you wouldn't have because we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. And so we see this tree. This tree gives to us these answers of why all of this has gone wrong, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But this passage here in Genesis 1 through 3 also introduces us to another tree. Look back to Genesis 2 verse 9. It says, And out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. And it says here, the tree of life also in the middle of the garden. So you had this garden with a lot of trees. And in the middle of the garden, you had two trees, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So we see here, number two, the second tree in our story, and that is the tree of life. The tree of life. Now we know the story, I've already been sharing it with you, that Adam and Eve made the wrong choice. They chose to take the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And because of that, all the brokenness, shame, fear, guilt, regret, remorse came into human existence, death, pain, and suffering. Now here's what happens in the story, and this is fascinating, and and I want us to look at it. In Genesis chapter 3, verses 22 and 24, notice what happens. Because man has sinned, Because he has chosen to go his own way and not believe that God is good and not to believe that God is enough, look at what happens. It says, And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become as one of us to know good and evil. Now, lest he put forth his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. So he drove out the man and he placed at the east of the garden of Eden cherubims. And a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. I want to point out something about this right here. This second tree, the tree of life. Because what we see in this is man, one of the consequences of mankind's sin is he was expelled from the garden, from his paradise that he was enjoying relationship with God in. And this is what sin does. Sin always isolates us. It, it, it separates us from, from anything that is good. Although at first, sin looks like a good idea because we'll get what we think we need. We'll get the more that we're so badly looking for. But sin always expels us. And, and this is what happens. Sin, God had to expel man from the Garden of Eden. Now, growing up, I always thought, here's what happened. Mankind sinned. God got ticked off, and he kicked them out of the garden. That's how I've always read this passage. But do you see what God was actually doing here? Do you see that actually what God was doing was a sign of his great mercy, his great love for mankind? Look, he says, lest man take of the tree of life and eat and live forever. You know what God didn't want? He didn't want Adam and Eve in their sinful fallen state taking of a tree that would enable them to live forever, thus sentencing them to a fate of living in a sinful, broken universe forever. This was actually a protective measure of mercy 
not a punitive act where God was just mad. Well, God's always mad at sin. You know why? He, He hates sin so much because he loves you so much and he loves me so much. And so God's wrath is really found with greater context and understanding God's great love for humanity. Sometimes my boys misunderstand when I see them about to run out into the street and I say, stop, I sound really mad at them. I'm just mad about them. I just love them and I don't want them to get hurt. And so there's that protective. And this is what our heavenly father, the goodness of our father was doing, is he was expelling man from the tree of life because he knew that if they were to take of this tree without a just measurement, without a just payment for their penalty of their sin, he knew that if they did that, they would eat and live forever in their fallen condition. And so, God did not want humanity living in this fallen condition forever. We tend to look at death as a terrible reality, and it certainly is in so many ways. But for those of us who have found refuge and rescue in Jesus, death is only a shadow of its former self. You see, he's the good shepherd that's walked through the valley of the shadow of death. He's our good shepherd who gave his life for us so that we do not have to fear death anymore. And actually what death is for those who know Jesus is it's actually, believe it or not, it's a mercy. For it is through death that we are delivered from this broken universe into a new universe. Want to know How I know that? Fast forward to the end of the Bible for just a moment. Revelation chapter number 21 and 22. So we see this tree of life here in Genesis 2 and 3. And then the tree of life vanishes off the scene of the entire story of the Bible. And it doesn't show up again here until Revelation chapters 21 and 22. And actually it's even mentioned here at the beginning of Revelation. Look at 2 verse 7. It says, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. So think about this. I mean, you have a Bible that's been written over 14 or 1500 years by over 40 different human authors. And yet this tree that shows up in Genesis, and and this whole account of Genesis was written by Moses, inspired by God, written by Moses. John wrote Revelation. John and Moses are separated by thousands of years. And if John was making up the story, man, he did a really good job of tying back in a thematic plot element all the way from Genesis, this tree of life. See, he wasn't making up the story. There was one ultimate author that was crafting the story and writing this beautiful story of redemption. And so you see this tree of life. And notice this tree of life shows up here, but notice the difference in the scene. The tree shows back up on the, on the scene of the story, but... Keep in mind this question. I thought God wanted to keep people from eating of the tree of life. Now God says here in Revelation, to him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life. Wait a second. I thought God kicked man out of the garden because he didn't want man to eat of the tree. Because if they did, they would live in their fallen state forever. And all they would ever experience is death, pain, and suffering for eternity. So what's changed? Keep that in the back of your head as we look through these passages. You see, what Revelation does now is it jumps to the end of the questions of the worldview, and it says, okay, here's where all of this is going to end. Genesis answers the first two questions. How do we get here? What went wrong with the world? And Revelation answers this worldview question. How does all of this, how does human history, how does every person who has ever lived, where are they headed? 
And so this is what Revelation, these, these verses we're about to read, is going to answer this question of how does it all end. Look at Revelation 21, verses 3 through 7. Just listen to these verses. It says, And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. Is there anybody in this room that has ever sobbed uncontrollably because of pain, sorrow, suffering, death? There's the promise. How does your story end? Well, if you know Jesus, it ends with no more tears. There shall be no more death, the Bible says. There shall be no more sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain. For the former things are passed away. Can we just say that phrase together? For the former things passed away. One, two, three. For the former things are passed away. One more time. I got to hear that from you guys this morning. I need this. I need to hear you say that. One, two, three. For the former things are passed away. Wow. I hope I'm next to y'all when we hear those words. Be like, yes! Amen. It'll be greater than any Christmas morning when you woke up and saw what you thought was the favorite gift that you would ever want or desire. Those words, that's going to be truly wonderful. For the former things are passed away. He keeps saying here, And he sat upon the throne and said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said, Right, for these words are true and faithful. And he said unto me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. Now, look at Revelation 22, verses 1 through 3. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the midst of the street of it, and on either side of the river, here's that tree, was the tree of life which bare twelve manner of fruits and yielded her fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So again, the whole story of the Bible. How do we get here and what went wrong? Well, God placed man in his paradise. God, God placed man in this paradise with these trees, and mankind made the wrong choice, chose to disobey God, chose to turn his back on God. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil answers the first two questions. How do we get here? What went wrong? Revelation says, here's how it all ends. And what you have here in this story is, now it seems like God wants people to come to the tree of life. So what changed? Well, before we answer that question, I want to point out one more verse to you. Verse 3 of Revelation 22. And there shall be no more curse. How does it end? We have become a very cynical, very skeptical culture. There are really no good people. Politicians' lives are now put on display, and if you did something 40 years ago, they're going to find out. And so we live in a very cynical world, and really we look at all the fairy tale Disney stories, and we're like, that's all fairy tale, that's all make-believe. And so when we read something like this and we see that the Bible says there shall be no more curse, the danger is just to assume, well, it's just another long line of fairy tales. 
It's just a long, another long line of stories that, that we tell ourselves to make us feel better in the midst of our suffering. What if this is the true story for which all the fairy tales are echoes and whispers of? I believe it to be true. I don't believe you can have a writer who lived thousands of years later than the first writer who wrote Genesis and have them somehow get together and say, oh, this is going to be a good plot device to bring back here at the end of the story, this tree of life. You realize that the tree of life showing up in Revelation is one of the greatest proofs of the inspiration of Scripture in all the world? Because you have a tree that seemed to be insignificant. I mean, it was only mentioned for a couple of chapters. And now it shows back up. And again, the question is, what changed? Notice this verse, Revelation twenty-two fourteen. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life. So again, it's as if God is saying, okay, we want you to come back now. So the question is, what changed? So there's two trees, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and the tree of life. One tree brought death, the other tree brings life. One tree brought the curse, the other tree removes the curse. The tree of life removes the curse. With one tree, the eating of that tree brings pain, sickness, sorrow, and every struggle you've ever had in your life comes from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But the day is coming when eating of the tree of life will remove every pain, every sickness, every sorrow, every broken relationship, every regret will be gone because of this tree. These are two of the most important trees of the Bible, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. But there's a third tree that stands in the gap between those two trees. In fact, it is this third tree that you just heard Hannah and Emma sing beautifully about, the mercy tree, that answers the question, the third question of the worldview. Tree of the knowledge of good and evil, how we got here? What went wrong? Tree of life, how's it all going to end one day? The mercy tree, the tree that Christ was crucified upon, gives to us the solution for how we come back to the tree of life. You know, we believe that everyone is going to live forever somewhere. You'll spend eternity somewhere forever. Your soul, regardless of who you are, where you've been, what you've done, who you know, our soul will exist forever somewhere. According to the Word of God, there's only two destinations. Just like there were those two trees in the garden, there are two outcomes to your ultimate existence, either heaven or hell. Now, this isn't shocking. It shouldn't be. 90% of Americans believe that heaven and hell really exist. But Americans are bad at math. Americans believe, out of the 90% that believe in heaven and hell, only 2% of those quiz said they believe they're going to spend eternity in hell. But 97% of, of, percent of them say that they know somebody who is going to go to hell. What that tells me is, is we tend to be easier on ourselves than we are on others. And we tend to try to place ourselves in the position of God when only God is the judge and only God ultimately knows the hearts of human beings. And so the reality is, is we do believe in these two destinations for every person who's ever lived. And if we're honest, all of us have sinned. 
As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. The way. God kicked Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden. Why? As a protective measure of mercy, lest they come back to the way of the tree of life in their fallen condition and live forever. And so we've all gone out of the way because of our choice of sin. And they're become together unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. No, not one. You know, we're all on God's naughty list. Santa pointed that out earlier, didn't he? And so there's this third tree, this mercy tree, which hopefully is going to solve this problem that we're not righteous. There's none righteous. 1 Peter 2, 24 says that Jesus bare bare our sins in his own body on the tree. That we being dead to sins should live unto righteousness by whose stripes ye were healed. Healing for the nations, living to righteousness. We were dead to sin, but Jesus, through hanging on the mercy tree, could bridge the gap between the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life and bring us back to the tree. Why is it important that Jesus would die upon the tree? But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Do we see what this verse is so important? The reason is, is because what this points out is that everyone has this inborn thinking that we can have a relationship with God if we're good enough. That's how humanity thinks. They think that they they know deep down that there is something not right about their life. But then what they wrongly think is they think that they can do something enough to offset it. And so they think that the pretty nice people are good enough, and and God will weigh that out, and that's going to be okay. So, so, So we think that, okay, we work hard, we set up our own standards, we might even follow a couple of laws in the Old Testament, and we think that through doing that, we can stay on God's nice list. You know, be good, get good. Be good, get, or be bad, get bad. And so we live life thinking that God deals in this merit system. And so if we do good, we get good. If we do bad, we get bad. That's the Santa story. You're either naughty or nice, making a list, checking it twice, going to find out who's naughty or nice. Better be good. What the gospel does is it turns that thinking, that worldview on its head. Because the reality is there is none righteous. No, not one. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. And so no matter how hard we try, we can't change our location on the list. Only God could do that. And ultimately, only Jesus, God's Son, could take care of that issue. Romans 3, 22 and 24 says, The righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. It's the same for everyone. Everyone has to go through the mercy tree. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. 
this verse is so important, folks. It says that we can be justified. You know what that word justified means? It means to be made righteous, to be declared righteous. Not by doing good things, but notice that this righteousness, this justification is offered freely by his grace. It's a gift. It's not something you earn. It's a gift because of Jesus' limitless, amazing, marvelous, matchless, incomprehensible grace. That's why. And you know what's going on right now in this room is Satan is trying to distract from the message of the truth of the gospel. Do you hear it? He's trying. He's trying to turn, turn all these things off and on. I don't know what's going on. I'm, I'm standing up here thinking, you know what? It's very funny how all this seems to happen right as the gospel is being delivered. So that tells me that someone in this room needs this. You need this. Do not come in here and think that this is just another religious moral, therapeutic moralism. That I'm going to offer you be good enough and God will think, think, no, none of us are good enough. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. And what I want you to do is see these words. And when they had fulfilled all that was written of him, speaking of Jesus, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. You see that what Jesus also lived through is he died as us as well. He died with us. He paid the wages of sin, which is death. He didn't have to pay for his own sin because he never sinned, but he was an adequate representative. He was sufficient. He was perfect. So he could make the payment for us. And then what God did is he raised him from the dead to take away those flaming cherubims from the tree of life and to give entrance back into the city through him. He's the door. He's the gate. By him, if any man enter in, he will have rest and peace and life eternal. Do you see? Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man, Jesus, is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. This is the way that we have forgiveness of our sins and a right relationship with God. It's through Jesus. And notice this. And by him, all that believe. Say those three words, all that believe. Ready? One, two, three. All that believe, and by him all that believe, are justified, made righteous from all things. You're forgiven of all sin from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. It's so pivotal that we understand this verse. Every sin, every sin you are set free from because of the once for all finished work of Jesus Christ on the mercy tree. What does this mean? That every sin you've ever committed and every sin that you are yet to commit has been forgiven through the finished work of Jesus. You can be free from its eternal penalty. You can be free from the eternal penalty of sin, death and separation from God because of what Jesus did for you. And notice what this verse tells us. It says it cannot be obtained through the law. What does that mean? It cannot be obtained by you trying to be good enough if you could be good enough, then Christ died for nothing, Galatians 2.21 tells us. If you can be justified through the law, Christ died in vain. And so you cannot be justified by the law. And notice it says, to everyone who believes. You know what? That's good news. It didn't say to the educated that believe. It didn't say to one nationality, because that's the context here, you know, both Jew and Gentile. To everyone. doesn't matter who you are where you've come from, 
what you did yesterday or last week, you can be forgiven of all sin because of what Jesus did for you on the mercy tree. So this is good news. This is not good news to those who try really hard or to those who think they have to do enough right things to stay on God's nice list. No, this is given to everyone because everyone's on the naughty list and they need to be forgiven. So you must believe. What must you believe? You must believe that Jesus came to this earth to live, to die, to rise again for the forgiveness of your sins and that you need rescue from your sin. That your sin will never allow you access to the tree of life unless another solution comes. And Jesus says that he is the only solution. I am the way. He's the way back to the tree of life. He is the way. He's the truth. He's the life. No man comes to the Father but by him. And so Revelation 21 and 22 and the entire gospel story, it's not a Santa Claus story. No, my friends, it's the sum total of all reality. And it is true for those who believe and who have placed their hope in Jesus Christ and what he did for them on the mercy tree. The greatest gift ever given to the human race wasn't placed under a tree, but was placed upon a tree, the mercy tree. My friend, have you ever placed your faith in Jesus Christ so that you could have access back to the tree of life and live forever with God in God's paradise? So what does this have to do with Christmas? Everything. Jesus, Christmas isn't really a story about Jesus in a manger. The real meaning of Christmas is about how that baby, how Jesus, born as a baby, would become the way back to the tree of life for all of us. That's what the message of Christmas is about. He who is mighty has conquered death's sting, taken on flesh, so that you and I, can have new life in him.